Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I am so glad to be here with Johan Andresen. Johan, a big welcome to my podcast. Mm, thank you. Nobody wants to have, of course, a tag of being a role model, but you have really done a lot of impressive, important things in your life, and you've chosen also to dedicate a big chunk of your time and competence to create good impact and inspire others too. So for those of you who do not know of Johan Andresen, here is a brief intro. Johan is a Norwegian industrialist and investor and owner of Ferd, one of the largest privately held investment companies in Norway. He has been the CEO from 1998 to 2012 and chairman of the board since 2012. And since many years, he's also initiated several projects from microfinance initiatives to stimulate growth in impoverished countries to many projects supporting young entrepreneurs in Europe. And he's also established a business unit within FERD dedicated to social entrepreneurship. But before, Johan, we dive into your world, I'd like to just know a little bit more about you. The first question I want to ask you is really, what, what is your purpose? Or if you want to call it also maybe your dream? Because, you know, dreams can move mountains, so... Yes. I think the good thing about dreams is that you don't... First of all, you don't only need to have one, and it doesn't need to be permanent. And I think a lot of people dream when they're young, and then, you know, realism strikes in, and you get sort of a hunker down, and you, well, you try to make a living, you get a good education, stuff like that, practical stuff. And then, as you grow older, hopefully, you will start listening. You will start daring to meet new people. You will try things out that you didn't dare before. And if you do that, listen, dare to meet new people and dare to try new things, you will discover new dreams that you didn't know you had. And in my case, I think I, I sort of, it is a dream to develop my little company, in a sense, into being a driving force for social change. And I mean, don't mean social change in every term of the world or in every part of the world, but in those areas where we can make a real difference doing what we're good at. And that's basically business development. And then here comes the social entrepreneurs in, you know. So my dream is actually mm. to make the social entrepreneurs the innovative force of the welfare state, in a sense. I mean, you can sort of wrap it up in that one sentence. Is that also what you mean uh, by uh, what I just happened to read on LinkedIn? You say the vision of your company and yours is to create enduring value and leave clear footprints. Yes. And, and you notice that vision does not say anything about, you know, the highest possible return on equity or yeah. um, the largest increase in uh, A or B. But it gives us and me, um, the family, the, the other owners, and the people working in the company a purpose beyond financial return and allows them to think about value creation in more sense than one, i.e. more sense than the monetary or the economic one, but actually think about why are we here and how can we actually employ ourselves? How can we uh, release our potential? How can we make a footprint in society that goes beyond 
the value chains that we have during our regular business. So it's uh, it's meant to expand. It's meant to, in a sort, capture dreams, uh, if you might say, and not only my dreams, but the dreams that uh, individual people in the company might have, uh, and give them the opportunity to suggest us doing something that we haven't done before, for instance. Was there anything in particular that kind of triggered this gradually over your lifetime, or, or has it always been there? No, I think it's been developing uh, in the sense that I, I started going to Davos, to the World Economic Forum, and I started meeting young people from other parts of the world who were following their dreams and making, you know, were doing great things and having great impact at a very young age. And I thought, well, I mean, um, what have I done, you know? Um, and I'm not that creative. I'm not that sort of daring. Um, but let's see, how can I employ the resources that I do have? And I don't mean my own necessarily intellect, but the, uh, the both the financial and also the resources in, in the company, the people in another area. So I, I started trying things out. And, you know, first I met this guy, um, the guy who runs the Homeless World Cup, Mel Young, crazy Scottish guy. And he actually set up a, a social entrepreneur who actually arranges football, a World Cup for homeless people. So I said, that's the craziest things I ever heard. I mean, that's, not, that's never going to fly, you know. I didn't say that, but I, I was thinking that. And of course, now it's a huge event. It's coming to Oslo, actually, um, beginning of September. There's more than 70 nations involved. And the whole thing was that in order to achieve that, to scale that organization, he used business development methods. And I said, well, I can do that. So I went home and thought about it for several years. And then, okay, I started trying things out with social entrepreneurs with the assumption that they needed uh, business development strategy, financial support, of course, uh, sometimes investment support. And so in a sense, that was a pivotal meeting. And I remember it well because there was a reception and Peter Gabriel, you know, the former yeah. Genesis guy, he was there and he was the big star. Uh, but Mel Young and I, we wanted beer and not something else. <laughs> we walked over to the bar and had a beer and then we sat down and then he started talking about it. And, and that's, the, I guess, my initial point that if you dare to listen to people who you think you have nothing in common with, you're going to discover stuff about yourself that you didn't know. And that's that's kind of cool. That's very interesting you say that. I, I believe a lot in the power of, uh, you know, being yourself and being authentic because mm -hmm. in that authenticity, and that goes, I think, also for companies, you know, mm -hmm. companies that are really authentic, that are genuine in what they want and especially why they want it, even if their services and products are probably, you know, exist somewhere else they come across very strongly and, and people get automatically attracted to them. So I think that as well for people, you know, if you are authentic and if you are just being yourself and pulling out the best of yourself and being aware of this, then, then things start to happen around you that are really yeah, valuable. I, yeah, and I think that we didn't really think about, or I didn't really think about the impact that all these engagements would have on us. But uh, yeah. just to sort of uh, jump onto what you just mentioned, people seem to be attracted to our companies, not necessarily because we pay the most or because we're the coolest or the greatest, but because they, the values that they have align with ours. And of course, you know, they think that they can explore their potential in our companies. And that's something that I sort of the insight that I got that, you know, you want to recruit the best people, you know, with the most potential and the best values, but those people have options. 
I mean, you know, they usually go elsewhere, you know, <laughs> and it's their choice. They actually select the company that they want to work for. It's not that we can go out and say, we want you. They actually uh, select us. And that, once you understand that, then you realize you have to work with, we'll call it authenticity, call it credibility. Yeah. I mean, you could call it a brand, but it's actually what makes you tick and does, does people believe it? Are you collaborating with other people to get more momentum or? Well, we've learned a lot from others. Well, it's called stealing with pride uh, within the social entrepreneurship uh, family. But I think what's slightly, I wouldn't call it disappointing, but slightly surprising to me is that you will find that people engage with social entrepreneurs through their families, through their foundations, or maybe through a fund if they're adventurous. But very rarely do they do it through their own operating company. It's like they don't want their own businesses to be disturbed by, you know, this sort of funky uh, <laughs> side agenda, which, mm -hmm. you know, shouldn't be a side agenda. It can, it can easily be part of the, the main agenda. So mm -hmm. it's actually, when I talk to people, they what they think is uh, innovative or novel is that we treat the social entrepreneurs as we treat a regular investment, a regular company. Basically, we treat them as real people who want to make a difference. They have a goal. They want to scale their solutions. They want to reach more young people or old people or whatever with their idea. And that's basically what you do with companies. I mean, you try to make them bigger and better and uh, more effective and have a bigger yeah. impact. So it's sometimes it's difficult to relate to people who because they think it's, well, I mean, how do you mix the social goal and the financial goal or the economic goal but it's really easy it's just you put the social goal first and then the rest comes <laughs> <laughs> later um, but yeah. um, but I have tried to get other family businesses family offices investment companies governed by one or several people you, mm. that seems to be the, the decision-making power it makes a difference mm. and it's, it's picking up so I'm, I'm happy to see that actually others are trying to in their own way uh, based on their own competences, based on their own, whatever they're good at, do something lo like uh, like we're doing. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not uh, afraid of being copied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, they talk oh, since a long time ago about mm -hmm. these uh, three Ps, you know, the planet, what is good for the planet and the people is, mm -hmm. of course, eventually going to end up being good for the profit as well. So with that logic, similar logic yeah. to, to yours, right? Yeah. But you said, Typically, that it's like a side business. They don't know what to do with it. Just put it in the middle and follow. Are you doing that? I mean, this is one of your business units. In what way has that business unit and what you've learned there influenced the rest of the business within industry and finance? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't really know. As mentioned, I think it helps us recruit better. I think it makes the people who already work in the company more self-aware. They have a higher level of self-insight, I think, than their peers. Because we, we use the executives and the professionals in the different business units, and in the other business units or in the operating companies, to sit on the boards uh, or be specialists or coaches or whatever for the social entrepreneurs. So they get exposed. I mean, they get like real exposure, not only to the social entrepreneur, but to, to people who are on, you know, on the street, whether they're drug addicts, whether they're ex-criminals, whether they are um, have uh, challenges when it comes to mental health, you know, so they actually get to meet, I would call it real people. <laughs> um, 
and and so they become more i think i wouldn't call it humble but they be, they gain self insight and therefore they are actually better at what they do the rest of the time so i think that's the biggest impact in in addition to the recruitment but i also think it it, it allows us to to dare new things because we did not we thought we will scale this organizations and they would do fine but we actually had to open doors in government offices and uh, in local communes to actually have them buy these solutions and distribute them to the people who were needing them and uh, so we have dared to knock down doors or knock on doors <laughs> to start with and in that case we have sort of gained an awareness that we can do things that we didn't think were possible so i think it's uh, we're not dreaming uh, in that sense we're actually make dreams happen yeah. to some extent um uh, as as we go along but do you also have a dream that somebody if they would hear it they would say johan you're crazy that's not possible do you have such a you know big dream um, as well well You know, you mentioned the microfinance. I'm, I'm not going to. I can't go into details here, but we're mm. we're using the microfinance fund as a possible platform. Uh, I, I put that up together with the government of Norway back in 2008, and we're reaching seven million people now. But based on what we know about microfinance, mm. there is a need beyond the sort of financial inclusion. So you can say you have a you have a double bottom line now. You have the social bottom line, then you have the financial bottom line. But there's a possibility to make a huge impact on the environment, on the climate, and that's uh, and this is going to be a real. If, if we make it happen, it's going to be great. If it does, if we don't make it happen, it's going to be just one of those crash and burns that we <laughs> that we had in the past. So I can't go into details, but I mean, mm -hmm. once you reach a certain level of, uh, I don't call it competence, you have some great people around you, you can use those platforms to do things in other areas uh, that uh, you didn't think were possible so i think it's you have to dare to actually hire some people and then young people are the you know the least cost i mean great people they create value so putting together great teams and without mm. actually always knowing exactly mm. what they are going to do but let themselves mm. figure it out it's um, at least that's take chance on people sometime are you often following your what people would call gut feeling Not necessarily. Both the microfinance idea and the social entrepreneurship idea, I spent three or four years on each before I put them into action. Which, of course, I regret now because I was I wasn't very much wiser down the road. Uh, But when you like look for, as you say, a great team, good people, apart from them having a you know a good track record or uh, and so on, are you going for the gut feeling as well? Or? Well, I've. To start with, I always hire people that are better than myself. I, I, I just I try to, which shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, and I think, well, I think that's a good ambition to have at least. Um, but I think most important decisions one should not make on one's own. I mean, if you have trusted people around you, ask them, have them talk to the people. You know, so we always, for instance, when we hire, there's at least two or three people involved sometimes even more because my gut feeling might be wrong and then you know of course i, I will i will take the, the blame but if you make if you make a wrong recruitment it can be very disastrous for also for the rest of the team so you just can't rely on your best gut feeling every time and that goes also mm. goes for investments um mm. i mean i think it's fantastic to see 
you know, principals mm -hmm. who run large organizations and sort of point in one direction and we buy that or we go in this direction. But I mean, I'm the fifth generation of this company. I mean, um, how can I expect to actually know where we're going all the time? You have to rely on other people as well. Mm. What uh, turning points in your life have influenced you the most? Actually, I went to one of these conferences. I think one of, one of our companies actually invited somebody who he was working in a PR agency, in a communication agency, and he actually did his pitch on, well, this little, he had this little slide with vision and values. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Why, why don't I try to put together one for us? And it turned out that, I mean, I hired him and said, let's do, um, do some research on how people look at us as, you know, as a company. Uh, how would they describe us? And the results were devastating. I mean, they were disastrous. I mean, we were perceived, this was back in 1999, 2000. And the image that we had of ourselves was completely different than the ones people around us. I mean, there were mm -hmm. customers, bankers, lawyers, consultants, uh, ex-employees. Uh, that reality check was very important. And from then on, we said, well, this is unacceptable. We're not going to be this kind of company. Uh, we're going to be a completely different type of company. Uh, and then we put some new words uh, on uh, on the on the board, and they were uh, we chose our values: credibility, spirit of adventure, a long-term view, and team play. And those are assigned values. Those are not values that we hold. Those are values that you or somebody else may assign to us. Talk to us in in those terms. So those were our aspirations. Mm -hmm. So if somebody would talk about us, they would describe us like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there was a huge gap between those ambitions and uh, and the words that this. Uh, what were they? Uh, they at were, that time. Uh, yeah. I mean, more what or less. Were, yes, they were. Um, what were they? They were honest. That was that was a good one. But all the others were. Uh, they're afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, they're sort of um, cautious. Yeah, very cautious. Conservative. Uh, very co conservative. They were long term, but it was not sort of a good long term. It was like a an overly patient long term. Now I talk about long termism as being impatient. So we can be impatient for a very long time, mm. and then that's fine yeah. to be you know to mm. be long term. Mm. But if you're long term and not impatient, mm. well, I mean you could be asleep at the wheel or whatever. So that was a turning point, and I and there was also a turning point in terms of, well, if if we're going to do this, we'll, we'll need a new team, won't we? Uh, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I started hiring some different people, and that changed a lot. So, so that was in, important. But what uh, long-term solutions for business do you do you believe in? Well, a lot of people talk now about sustainability, uh, CSR, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think everybody has to find their own sort of driving force. They have to sort of understand why they are there, what values drive them, and then they will figure out that there are some things that are more important than others. So when this guy Pullman in Unilever says, "Well, you know, we're going to drop the quarterly statements," you know, um, if you don't like it, you know. Go buy somebody else a share. And so they realized that this was not adding to their business. This was not making them more or less sustainable. So let's focus on something else, something that matters, you know, be it uh, how we use water. Is that aligned with our shareholders, how we use water? Of course, I mean, water is a cost. Um, 
but it's also a benefit to the people on the ground. So you, I think when you try to find interests that are aligned, but that are sort of hidden to some extent, then you can make businesses great you, and you can make them sustainable and you can, and you can make people believe in, in different things. And sometimes they already have the philosophy. You just have to ask them. For instance, um, one of our companies makes um, hiking shoes, Lundhags, and they have a philosophy that uh, you shouldn't actually have to own more than two or three pairs in your life uh, because they'll last for 10, 15 years and we'll take them back and repair them. And so in a sense, if you actually dare to inquire, what, what are the philosophies of the companies that you own? And is there an underlying belief in something that you can actually make a business case on? Maybe you should do that. You know, maybe we should repair more clothes, you know, more, uh, more stuff instead of trying to sell you another pair. You know, we can't compete with... Uh, every boot or clothing company in the world, but can we do it our, our way? I think you have to look, go to look for your way. Even in the fashion industry, they're doing these rental concepts yes. and so on as part of this, uh, let's call it circular you know, economy thinking. You yeah. know. But if you assume that you have all doors open and all resources available, what would you innovate or change? A lot of the technologies that are great are also and in another context, dangerous. Sort of one of my roles is that I'm, um, I'm the chair of the Council on Ethics for the largest fund in the world, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund. And sometimes I worry about things being developed that, well, you could sort of, sort of jump into the, um, the fray, fully autonomous weapons. And there's a lot of good things, uh, good technology being developed when it comes to navigation, when it comes to finding cancer, and they can all be put together to develop a weapon. So how do you actually make people or stop making something that is potentially dangerous for mankind and um, have them focus on, on, on something else? So how would you actually do that? Um, can you do that by, um, by law? Can you do it by leadership? Can you do it by incentives? How would you incentivize every systemic defense planner and their technology punks to actually do something else you know that would be a very you know how do you stop people making the matrix for instance if you, you know remember that film yeah or making that possible i, I think that's um that is a real challenge and i think it's gonna it's gonna be a challenge before we discover that we can't reach the uh two degrees target that, that we're we're trying you know through the paris agreement and others and so with there's other things happening that are more dangerous than like climate um, and everybody else is working on climate so I would try to incentivize in some ways these uh, potentially dark forces um, to to do something else I don't really have a clue how to do it but if I have unlimited resources well I mean you can pay people to actually stop doing things as well <laughs> <laughs> I think leading by example is underrated. Today we see people who lead by example and they are basically overrated um, <laughs> to some extent, especially as, as some politicians. And um, I think people should take notice of those even, and regardless of whether they're leading a large organization like Pullman in um, Unilever or whether it's a social entrepreneur somewhere, mm. take action based on what they're doing and adapt it to, mm. to your organization. Is there any particular person or company that you are, you know, 
impressed by or that you are inspired by? Yes, and they are often under the radar for most. Mm. Like, for instance, um, there's a lady in Stavanger. Uh, she runs the church town mission. She got the idea that she would start a street newspaper, like the biggest here in London or Aliko Slo in Oslo. So basically, they're, they're sold by people who are um, down and out. It's a non-profit. Um, this is an, a small NGO, right? So, but she understood the the need f- to make a profit on the street newspaper. But but her heart and the people that she surrounded her with to make this uh, thing fly, uh, and it became the, the best street newspaper in Norway in um, in a year and a half. And, and and we we sort of helped her along a little bit. But that was not what made it great. And there was something about her genuine desire for people who were basically in the gutter and uh, not only basically but sort of literally in the gutter and seeing the potential that they had to dig themselves out of that hole and make them their lives a little bit better but in relative terms enormously much better by getting a fair or at least an income that they had earned on their own rather than through burglary or prostitution or something like that and and whenever i sort of think about the things are sort of difficult or when things are not possible i always think about um, her her name is maggie hotler and you know if i can be sort of half as good as she is then i'm halfway there <laughs> <laughs> do you know where her uh, driving force came from to do this well i mean she's a devoted christian um so i think her it comes from faith originally but it's not the kind of faith that that you hear from pulpits it's the f- type of faith that are based on values put into action mm. i mean i mean that i can believe in <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right now what do you think the most important thing for companies is to focus on one is of course the um the climate challenge mm. and the other is um, you might call inclusive growth and you start with the latter inclusive growth is that doesn't only deal with people who are poor in countries that are um, developing, but it also means people who are left out, even in developed countries. And that's why we have this, call it disturbances, that people actually vote completely differently than you expect them. And I think companies have to take part of the, the responsibility for that, that they actually they have to make people understand why they are there, and they have to... I think, to some extent, revert a little bit back to the sort of old type of companies that actually took more of a responsibility in the communities where they are. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a not back to the company town type of uh, solution, but that they actually, uh, to some extent, make certain that they look after a wider community where they have impact, whether they source resources, uh, whether they sell their products to get people back on track, especially young people who are left out for, for some reason um, with or without the great education. And of course, I think we all have to pitch in a little or in a big way to try to avoid breaching the the two degrees uh, target uh, or keep below that. And I think it's, um, I think as for instance, I mean, we've, we've tried to come up with, to align our way of doing that with costs. I mean, are there certain costs that we can take out that basically will also reduce the amount of energy that we spend or, or the type of energy 
that we spend. Um, so I think a lot can be done aligning the values of the company with the goals of, of the Paris Agreement. If you go from the company level up to some kind of, a, let's call it all-encompassing global level, what do you think the world needs the most at this time? Well, the, the world is always to some extent short on leadership. From a small village to uh, the most powerful nation in the world, it, it seems to be always that there's, uh, that there's lack in... Uh, not, not necessarily will, but in, in courage to actually do stuff, say stuff, take action that are not popular in the short term, but are absolutely necessary um, in the longer term. And I think to some extent, I, I think Angela Merkel in, in Germany, she's one person that people are now looking up to as sort of a, we're actually perhaps the only person, uh, not the only person, but one of the great leaders of, of our time. But there are few and far in between, I think. And that's kind of scary that people actually rise to positions for reasons completely different than the right ones. And um, yeah, that's what's missing. But that, that will always be missing. I mean, uh, not everyone can be the philosopher king, but I mean, you know, at least we can listen to some other people than our own Twitter feed. Thank you very much, Johan. It has been so good talking to you and really inspiring. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for having me. And if you um, uh, want to find out more about Johan and his work, uh, you can head to fared.com. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at fairedowner, so F-E-R-D-O-W-N-E-R. Great. Thank you for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs>